Welcome to the podcast channel of the East Bay Unity Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. The opinions expressed here are those of individual members and do not represent OA as a whole. For more information about our intergroup, please visit our website at eastbayoa.org. Sorry about that. Dog is my co-pilot. So I am Cassie. I am a compulsive eater. I'm a former anorectic, bulimic, restrictor, over-exerciser. Um, I also suffer from something clinically named in the 1990s called orthorexia nervosa, which is my compulsion to eat healthy food to the point where it really isn't healthy anymore. So that's a, that's another thing that I know a few people, you know, it's like, it has to be this, it has to be organic. It has to be clean. It has to be whatever it is. So, um, you know, anything that stresses you out around food, I've pretty much done it. I have not done laxatives and I've not been overweight, but I think you can check pretty much every other box out there. So a lot of people that haven't dealt with anorexia don't know how addictive it is to starve yourself. That when you're starving, your brain shuts down and you stop experiencing emotions that hurt. And that, you know, you get the fog and the numbness that a lot of other people get from eating. So, it's an addiction and it is deadly. And I got to the point where I was five foot eight and weighed 92 pounds and I was literally near death. And there's, there's um, with body dysmorphia, you, I found at least that the thinner I got, the fatter I thought I looked. And either it was because, wow, I used to weigh 20 more pounds with this and people thought I was normal something just gets warped and it makes you want to starve yourself even more. <clears throat> so anyway, I, I guess I'll let you know that um, a lot of us try to understand why these things happen. And honestly, it's very tough to ask the question why I found because there's, there isn't a fact checker and you can fill your head with ideas and emotions that are just ideas and emotions and they're not gonna necessarily do you any good or answer any questions. Um, I came from an alcoholic household. I personally am terrified of booze. I was drunk once in my life and that did it for me. I've never drank since I was 17. Um, I've never done drugs also out of terror, but I come from a long line of addicts and food addicts, um, drug users, alcoholics. So there was enough chaos in my early life that when I hit some real problems as a teenager, I really didn't have a any good coping skills. So I had the traumas of um, sexual assault and I had a, a sledding accident when I was 17 that uh, I was in a coma for three months. And I used to be a really good student. In fact, I got into college when I was 16, but after that accident, my concentration was just shot. And what used to be the one thing I could believe in myself about doing well in school, that just fell apart. So my life was really just in shambles. And um, I found that starving was a really good answer. And does anybody understand that? Did normal people get that? No, but when you have a food addiction and a food problem, um, you develop a coping mechanism and it's maladaptive, but you cling to it. And I did for decades. So if you go back to the 1970s, there wasn't, there wasn't a very good understanding of a lot of things that we understand now. And for example, 
food allergies. There was a lot of things I was sensitive to that now get a lot of publicity and are accepted as true. For example, if you can't eat gluten, you have gluten-free alternatives. 1970s, you know, you just had to stop being a pain in the ass and complaining about food, right? So I had all kinds of things that upset my stomach. And then I had this, you know, progressively worse problem with, with eating and um, not eating as the case may be. So what I basically want to focus on for this talk is to tell you what gave me recovery and abstinence with food. And I, it was December 16th, 1995, that I did not binge when I could, and I haven't binged since. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in gods. I don't believe, I don't know. I'm not telling you I know what the universe is about or where life came from. I certainly am clueless. I don't know, but I don't believe in God. And then the, the problem with the, the steps and the steps I'm going to talk about tonight, which are 2, 3, and 11, which are very God-oriented, I'm just going to basically give you my secular view of how I saw them, how I understood them, and how they worked for me. So essentially, um, as, a, as a beginning, in, in the food disease, you have chaos, and you have noise, and you have confusion, and you have trumped-up drama in your life, and you basically thrive on it. You basically deal with it, and you put off conscious, you know, clear thinking with that insanity, basically. So in recovery, which is progressive, which gets better with time, I've found, you get back, you get back confidence, you get back self-acceptance, you get back peace, and you're able to cope with things that happen in your life. So step two says that you, there's a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity. So step one, we've identified the insanity. We know we're powerless over food, however you want to say it. So I know, I know that I have this hand that can pick up food or not. And I see that as my hand. And that hand going, putting stuff into my mouth is me. That's how I experience the, you know, that um, circumstance. So I don't see it as God because it's, I see it as my action. And I take responsibility for my actions. And there's a lot of people that believe in God and that's fine. And I totally accept whatever people believe in, do what works for you, that's beautiful. But to me, for example, if I have a great idea, if I think of a melody when I'm writing music, when I you know, paint something I really love, I don't see that as God. I don't think that God gave me an idea. And some people do, and if you do, that's fine. That's your reality. But in my reality, it's, my brain, it's my neurons, it's that whole scientific description of how, you know, thought processes work in our, our bodies. Um, but anyway, it's, it's basically that my non-disease self, which was fighting with my disease self for many decades, is the one that knows better about food and the one that understands nutrition and understands food as a way of keeping my body alive, right? It's not food that is the cure-all for loneliness and being upset and being disturbed. You know, in the, in the food disease, food takes on a much bigger role than what it really is in physical reality, right? Um, so to me, 
what restored me to sanity was breaking through this horrible shell I built around, built around myself that kept people out that were trying to help me. And that sort of isolated me to keep my disease active. You know, it's the disease wants, if you want to call it the disease, the disease wants to win and it sets you up to keep it winning. That's how it was for me. So with it, I got progressively sicker basically. But at the point that I was 92 pounds at five foot eight, I had a, a physician say to me, you know, there's nothing we can do. It's your choice. You can die tomorrow. You can have a heart attack. Your electrolytes are, are inadequate. You can do that or you can choose to live. And that affected me. And it was enough to sort of get me to eat and to eat to the point that I wasn't going to die. And as I gained more weight, the strangest things happened because I actually saw myself as thin. And I mean, I was painfully thin, believe me, I had those, you know, stick like legs and arms, but it actually saw me as a, as a more whole person. So unfortunately it wasn't the end of my food problem because a lot of things were going on in life that were very hard to cope with. And I discovered bulimia. So I got to a normal weight and I stayed there, but I had ridiculously compulsive eating and I'd, I'd hide food, I'd eat in privacy, I'd wait till my husband and my kids were asleep, I'd sneak out at night and eat food and throw it up and come home. It's like I was cheating on my husband with food. So anyway, the, the anecdotes of all the ways that I've misbehaved with food are, are too many to go into <laughs> a podcast. But I will say that when you reach a point where you break that isolation, and you're able to put down the shame by telling somebody truthfully what you've done to yourself and how your life is, it gives you this tiny bit of leverage and it gives you just a little more ability to see clearly and to choose not to eat compulsively. So honestly, it was the late 80s that I just was desperate to get better, to find a way out of bulimia. And bulimia wasn't that well understood in the 80s. There was Overeaters Anonymous, but as a non-religious person, I really had, I had a really hard time with all the God talk and it was a little more righteous back in those days. There wasn't really quite as much acceptance of other ways of seeing religion as there are now. At least that was my experience of it being an old timer. Um, anyway, so it was though a good six years of promising myself I'd stop and I'd never do it again before I actually got a grip. And there were little victories in between. And I found that every time I had a victory, every time I didn't give into a craving, I got a little more power. It gave me a little bit more pause that the next time I could say to myself, remember how good it felt when you didn't have vomit to clean up in the morning? Excuse my graphicness. And, you know, remember how, how wonderful it was when you just woke up and thought, I'm good, I made it. You know, and by day I was fine. It was nighttime when the boogeyman came out for me and I could, you know, I had all power over food and I only ate good stuff in the day, but at night it's like, you know, portion size went out the window. I used to kid one of my friends that in 1995, I learned what the term leftover meant. <laughs> Yay. Um, so anyway, it, it was um, a lot of hit and miss in the early 90s and struggling and limited abstinence that I finally on my son's birthday when I didn't do what I had in mind to do to binge, 
I realized that there was something very potent in the fact that the day before I just planned out what I was going to do. I just said to myself, all right, forget it. There's no way this is, you know, all the stuff that's going to go on tomorrow. I'm just going to go whole hog. And I planned out the events of the day and everything would be cool with the kids and all that stuff would be done. And then I'd have my time when I could go do my ridiculous binge. And, and, and when I got there, I thought, are you serious? This is what you want to do? Of all the things there are to do in life, of all the things I could enjoy with this time, why do I want to do something that makes me miserable? So honestly, I didn't think I would make it another day. I thought it was a fluke. And the next day, I felt really good that I hadn't done that binge. And I didn't binge that day. And honestly, 25 years, four months, and a couple of days later, it's, it's really like that. I, I know how tricky this disease can be. I know it. I had decades of practice and of duping myself into thinking I was going to fix it because I swore to myself I'd never do it again. And I meant it with all my heart. I'm never going to binge and throw up again, ever. But I kept doing it. So honestly, it's, it's, it's the communion from other people and the mental health you gain from being honest about who and how this disease has hijacked your life. And that at least gave me the clarity to step back and get, and get some distance from that disease process in my brain and make a choice. I saw it as, you know, this is my night. This is my life. How do I want to live it? And whatever the forces are in this world at work, I don't know what they are. And I know there's magical, amazing things that happen that can't be explained. But the people I've known over the course of my life with this problem are the reason I'm well today. So my message is go to these meetings, listen, hear what, whatever helps you, take it to heart and do what you can to get your life back. Take the pause, take a minute before your binge or before whatever it is and think about what you're doing. Just you know, step aside and say to yourself, it's only five minutes and then you can binge, but make a real five minutes of actually using your mind and say to yourself, is this what I wanna do? Is this really what I wanna to do to myself? And the beautiful thing is that even though my life, I'm still the same personality, I still have all the same impossible things that I dealt with when I was in the food disorder, but without the food problem, I'm not fighting myself. I'm not against myself. I don't hate myself. I don't loathe looking in the mirror. I mean, I don't really wanna look in the mirror, but it's not my obsession anymore. I'm not interested, you know, it's, it's not what my life's about. So I have an interesting life. I have a great life. I have a great job. You know, things turned out amazingly well for me. It's just that whatever life is going to throw you, it's better without a food problem, without an eating disorder, without the disease of compulsive eating, whatever it is, it's better. So that's, that's what I've found. And so far today, I have not binged again. And it's the best I can do to be honest with myself, to be honest with all of you in these meetings and to hope that something helps somebody at some point that when you're in your mind and you're healthy with yourself, you're, you're able to think clearly that you can eat mindfully, that you can be aware and focused on the eating to eat. And when the meal ends, the meal ends 
and eating is done and food is done. And then you do something interesting with yourself. You know, you're free. You get to go listen to music or go for a walk or call up a friend or think about something you're working on that's interesting to you, read a book. You know, there's all kinds of great things that are much more enriching than binging and, you know, whatever else food compulsion that you're dealing with. Um, so basically, I'm going to wrap it up there and, and just let you know that the power greater than ourselves, I really think is our, is our healthy self, is the part of us that's not food disordered, and it's the connection we have with each other. So that to me is the ticket to sanity. And however it works for you, whatever the details are, it could be very different than the way I experienced it, but I think that's the way to find it. And then as far as turning our will and the care of our lives over to God as we understood God, um, without a God, I'd say that that is, I guess I'd say recovery. I made a power to believe in recovery, that it was possible even for me, as sick as I'd been, as psychotically unable to eat food and, and you know, do the normal things that people do to stay alive. Um, believing that, you know, knowing it worked for other people and believing it could work for me, that's as close as I would get to say I turned it over because I let go, the diseased part of me let go of the, the wheel of, you know, like driving a car. I was in the driver's seat again with my wife. So that's what I would say turning it over means. Um, and then step 11, which is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. That to me would be continually every day believe in my recovery, believe in myself to stay recovered, to stay abstinent, and to cope with emotions and problems for what they are, not by trying to anesthetize myself with food in whatever way I can. Um, you know, you can put these things in a lot of different terms that work for you, but there is, there is behavior that was very much part of my life for decades that was ingrained in me that I never thought I could change, but I did. And I did it without any kind of a God or spirit um, or spirituality really. So it was definitely a belief that I could do it, that I could change my behavior. So in that sense, you could say that there was, um, there was an acceptance that I could be helped. I think it was other people who understood me and becoming teachable myself that enabled me to change. Because when I was in the disease, I worshiped, I worshiped that binge purge cycle like you know, some religious person would call a totally false idol. I was in it, boy, I was, it had my heart and soul. But I, I found my way out. And it's when you find your way out and you get a glimpse of what it's like to live a, a so-called normal life. Cassie, yeah, so you have a few minutes left. Great, thank you very much, Nancy. So it, it's, you become confident, you become accepting of yourself, you become better able to cope and you restore the kind of sanity that gives you the life you really wanna lead. So don't expect to become, you know, a perfect human being when you either get to your ideal weight or you become recovered for a long period of time. But whoever you are underneath the food disease, 
you're going to be okay with yourself. And that's the gift, whatever it looks like, whatever your specifics are. So I don't need any more than I've got. I'm not asking for anything else. The fact that I have recovery is, is really one of the greatest gifts I've gotten in my life. And I am very grateful. And I'm so thankful for all you guys. Thank you for listening to me.